Welcome again, everyone. This is the last um, of uh, Professor Baskin's series on, uh, uh, as part of the, the, the Humanitas Visiting Professorship of the History of Ideas. And um, uh, today, we, the format is uh, in conversation. And Brendan Daston needs no introduction because I can see looking around the room that virtually all of you have been to her previous events uh, this, this week. Um, but again, we're very delighted to have her still with us for this final event. Uh, and I'd also like to introduce uh, Professor Sally Shuttleworth, who uh, was, until quite recently, Head of Humanities Division in Oxford and is Professor at St. Anne's College. And also um, to introduce Professor John Christie, who was formerly Professor at the University of Leeds. And um, uh, Sally Shuttleworth is an expert on um, the intersection between literature and science in the 19th century in Britain. And uh, Professor Christie is an expert on many things, including enlightenment science and the history of chemistry. And the format of today's event is a bit different from what we did yesterday on Monday. It's, it's an in-conversation, and the theme is writing a history of reason. Right. Uh, thank you very, very much, Matthew. Um, so for those who haven't come to any of the previous events, doesn't matter at all. <laughs> but for those of you who have, we are going to design the session so we have about half an hour in conversation, and then we open up to questions which can be virtually on anything, so arising from what's been discussed um, during the week or indeed sort of wider issues for, from, from Rainey's work. Um, so we'll start with the, the very daunting title of writing the history of reason, um, which uh, makes you sort of quail somewhat and think <laughs> that we'll have to cover the entire history of reason. Um, but I thought it uh, might be a, a, a good opening for Rainey to talk a bit about her current project and how she sees it fitting in to what I think is a, a wider project which could almost be described as writing the history of reason. I, I noted um, in the, the talk um, on Monday where we were hearing about risk, responsibility and issues of insurance companies and the, the acts of God, those sort of one-offs, and realised that there's a, I could see a real trajectory from your early work on um, probability and then we go on to sort of natural wonders and strangeness and and now sort of coming back um, it all being formed um, within the 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 areas of risk and the the areas outside of the norm but if you'd like to talk a bit about yes, sort of yes. what your wider current project is and how it fits into your your general trajectory I mean thank you very much first of all and and I must defend this somewhat megalomaniac um, mm. title that mm. I've given this conversation um, and it was meant to be at once capacious as Sally said at the outset mm. um, I'd like to hear from other people and this is an umbrella which is so broad that surely nothing human or natural is foreign to it <laughs> um, and the other is um, to reflect a bit on what strikes me and those of you who were fortunate enough, enough to hear the symposium yesterday with the contributions from Martin Mulzo and Sachiko Kusakawa um, and Simon Werrett had a taste of this, what has been to me such a transformation of my own field, the history of science, you know, during my working lifetime, um, which is to take um, these echoing abstractions like reason and to try and cash them out 
in these very concrete practices. Um, so uh, Morel meticulously drawing his coins, putting the drawings in little envelopes, um, 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 James Watt um, saving every bit of string, um, the um, syringe from an enema for other, other purposes. Um, that kind of um, transformation of the extremely abstract into the extremely concrete has been, I think, very characteristic of the history of science and scholarship in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, and it's been, for me, a great inspiration um, in trying to look at, at topics, just as Sally said, that I started with topics like reasonableness in the form of the probability calculus, and to think about them afresh in terms of these practices of note-taking, of image-making, um, but also of self-making. I think a great deal, we, we touched upon this in the discussion, um, Alex Rag Morley's question yesterday, a great deal of um, the process of giving history, or reason a history, has been to um, reflect upon the history of being reasonable, what kind of self is the rational subject. So, so much by way of preface. Um, and to take up Sally's invitation to tell you a bit more about what I'm working on now um, that's especially relevant to this topic. Um, I, I, I've been always interested, if there's one leitmotif in, in all of my work, it's always been um, changing ideas of order. And um, you can see this, I think, just as Sally said, um, in the, um, the pendulum swing between forms of order which are highly formal in and of themselves, like the probability calculus forms of mathematics, um, versus the outliers, the wild outliers <laughs> that seem to contradict these orders, as in the case of mm. wonders and um, the order of nature. And the project that I'm now engaged on is, I'm afraid, a kind of graveyard of scholars <laughs> project. Um, it is a project about why, if it is indeed a fallacy, the naturalistic fallacy is so persistent? Um, why is it, despite oceans of philosophical ink, which have been expended to cure us of this fallacy, um, we, in many cultures, in many historical <coughs> epochs, um, irresistibly, it seems, reach for analogies between the moral and the natural orders? So what some of you heard in the lecture on Monday um, was looking at one kind of natural order, that of local natures, um, and reflecting on what happens when we are challenged to scale up what is, I think, an almost universally human um, sensitivity to the order of the ecology in which one lives, we in which we are challenged to scale that up to the global level. Um, the rest of the book, looks at um, two other forms of order, that of specific natures, that's the sort of ontological identity card, that which makes a squirrel a squirrel, or gold gold, and the kinds of moral orders it sustains, um, and that the third form of natural order, that of universal natural laws, which also sustains a very different kind of, of moral order, um, familiar to us, for example, in discussions about universal human rights. Um, and the argument of the book is, um, first, that these, there are many orders of nature, but that these are 
three very widespread forms. Second, um, that the abrogations of these forms of orders, monsters in the case of specific nature, the disequilibria in the case of local nature, um, marvels and miracles in the case of natural laws, each provokes a certain very characteristic cognitive passion. Um, in the case of monsters, horror, in the case of the disequilibria, terror, which is a kind of fear saturated with guilt, and in the case of miracles, wonder. Um, and these are cognitive passions because they involve <coughs> a judgment as well as an emotional reaction, the judgment that an order has been transgressed. Um, and the final um, pillar of the argument is that um, it's only very, very recently, in particular historical circumstances, that it has been seen as a particularly forceful kind of argument to anchor a moral or political order in a natural foundation. Um, but what is much more widespread, and perhaps an answer to the question I posed about what makes the naturalistic fallacy irresistible, is that um, we are a species that represents um, we are a species which somehow must model its orders. And nature is the most, not the only, but the most available and perhaps arguably the richest source of models of all kinds of orders. So that even if the intent is not to justify a moral order with an appeal to a natural analog, this process of making visible and external um, gravitates toward the natural, though not only the natural, there are examples of the artificial as well, um, as a source of models of all possible orders. So that, in a nutshell, is what the project as a whole is about. Excellent. <laughs> yes. Now, I, I wondered if I could, I mean, seizing on this notion of, of, of the cognitive passion, in objectivity, you, you create a distinction between the scientific self and the artistic self, and, and you see a tension between the two and the polarisation. Whereas when I read it, I constantly was thinking of Ruskin, hmm. um, who in the 19th century absolutely defined, I think, not only for the artists and, mm -hmm. and, and humanists, but also I, th I think the scientists, the, the idea of the moral within nature. Mm. So I, I know that you have the, the natural theology before, but this notion of seeing truly and going out into nature and its, its order and, and the, the, the eye that can truly discern, I think you find mm -hmm. within the moral sort of ideologues um, such as Ruskin as, as well as in the scientific community. Um, so I wondered if you'd like yes, to, to yeah, comment upon yeah. that. So um, just um, mm. for those of you who haven't read right. the book with Peter Gallison that Sally's referring to, this book on objectivity, um, Peter and I argue that um, post-Kant, yeah. this is mm. by no means a mm. trans-historical polarization, um, there tends to be a polarization mm. um, very much within the context of romanticism um, between a highly individualistic, um, flamboyantly subjective mm. artistic persona um, and a equally um, exaggerated, um, objective, self-effacing, um, scientific persona. Um, and we took as our witnesses mm. Baudelaire mm. on photography, mm. Baudelaire saying, you mm. know, 
it's all very well for the scientists to use mm -hmm. this new tool of photography, but it, it, is, it is completely unacceptable for artists to use it because it does not bear the signature of the artist's personality. The work of art must be um, drenched with the individuality of the artist. Um, Ruskin, I think it's not an accident, loathes the word objectivity. Mm. He hate, he, he, mm. um, Peter and I originally mm. had, mm. in a much longer version of this already long book, um, actually um, a section on Ruskin. Ah, right. Um, <laughs> and um, and mm. he, he, he just he detested this word. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think he detested it for exactly the reasons you would use. He mm. could not understand what the problem was mm. in combining an artistic and a scientific mm. view mm. of the matter. Yeah. And um, I think, especially in his work on clouds, um, and his view that the Dutch landscape papers mm. painters had mm. been just hopeless duffers with this—you mm. know—they just put slap daubs mm. of white mm. paint in the mm. sky, whatever. They had to mm. do a, a cloud, and it was first Turner who first understood um, that. You see, in his studies on clouds, um, and his admiration—not. Um, entirely unqualified for Luke Howard's classifications, mm. um, that he really kept the faith with a much earlier view mm. about truth to nature, just as in the case of the 18th century observers, um, um, deeply informed by mm. detailed, mm. conscientious, long-term observation, um, but one which made the talents of um, artistic idealization absolutely necessary. Mm. Um, to to um, depiction, so um, he is indeed um, the great resistor mm. <laughs> to all mm. of this. <laughs> mm. As is Heckel, for example, in um, on on mm. the continent. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yes, John. I've been wondering, mm. really, as as you've spoken uh, just now, um, <coughs> if we pick out some of your thematics, um, uh, the encompassing category of order. Uh, your stress on uh, concrete procedures and the practical reasoning which accompanies them, stress on uh, the self and self-making, uh, and latterly these topologies of the moral and the natural. Uh, and if we take these as characteristic themes of your approach to uh, writing history of reason, um, would it help uh, further demarcate and focus it to contrast it or compare these stresses with um, other efforts to do the history of reason? I'm thinking particularly of, um, well, in Oxonian terms, Alistair Crombie's work on the history of styles of reasoning, that taken up by a uh, philosopher historian like Ian Hacking, Latterly, maybe in John Pickstone's book, Ways of mm -hmm. uh, uh, Ways of Knowing, and I noticed a book uh, with a Chinese author on the same topic out last year. I've not read it yet. So that history of styles of reasoning is mm -hmm. in fact very current, very popular uh, uh, at the moment. And I suppose the other name and the other project to conjure with uh, would be simply that of uh, Michel Foucault, just insofar as uh, whenever he was asked what he did because people were often not quite sure. Uh, he expressed bewilderment that he wasn't instantly recognizable. Um, uh, he says, I'm part of that uh, neo-Kantian uh, Parisian tradition, and what we do is write uh, about the history of reason and the historical condition of reasoning. Yeah? And sometimes I think your work has a kind of relation uh, 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 
to those Foucauldian reflexes, but equally it seems to differentiate itself quite strongly at times as well. Yes, I mean, I, it's, it's always difficult to reflect on um, the roots of my own work. I can certainly say, though, that I'm indebted to all the authors you name except the Chinese one, whom I also haven't read. <laughs> um, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm particularly, I'm, I think I'm particularly indebted to Ian Hacking's work in many ways. Um, um, I can still remember so vividly um, being at Cambridge in the early 1970s, mid-1970s, um, and Ian coming to give um, a talk on what became his book on the emergence of probability to the history and philosophy of science department at Cambridge. And I can remember the complete um, parting of the ways, like the Red Sea, between the graduate students and the faculty. So the graduate students were absolutely electrified, um, and the faculty were bewildered unto indignant, um, <laughs> right? And it, so it, it stayed with me as a kind of touchstone experience. And I can remember it so, um, as I say, tec in technicolor, the, the expression on Gerd Buchdahl's and Mary Hess's face that, <laughs> uh, that um, I, I think of that as really a seminal moment. And what I think really excited us about Ian's approach um, was, first of all, he called it at that point, it was not called probability, it was called something like you know, history of evidence, was the very idea that something like evidence could have a history. I mean, this, this simply um, transfixed us. Um, and um, at that point, you know, Ian was very much you know, groping, tatonement, finding his way about how to do it. Um, and he himself, I think, would still um, describe himself as being very much in a history of philosophy, history of ideas, yeah. tradition. But because he's the kind of person he is, he would go to the Cairo Museum and inveigle the curator to let him take what looked like, you know, 5,000-year-old dice and roll them for an afternoon to figure <laughs> out what the odds were. Um, so there was already an element of this kind of um, hands-on concreteness in, in his approach. And so I really, I, I, um, there have been many others. I say I certainly read Crombie with, with profit and pleasure, but there's something about Ian's combination of this. He's a philosopher, and he's interested in um, ethereal categories, yes. but this um, the crunchiness, as it were, of the way in which he's, you know, he, he tries to get at the, the texture and how it could have infiltrated everyday experience. Mm -hmm. That really yes. has been a pole star for yes, me. Yeah. Yeah. And if we took things a bit um, closer to home, say, at uh, Harvard and Princeton, if we take a work uh, uh, such as yours with Peter Gallison's on objectivity, and part of the way you start that, I mean, how can it have a history? You know, surely, you know, Archimedes was objective and so on and so on. We may have used different terms. We may have to do a bit of fancy historical semantics on it. Um, uh, but like hacking, you take, okay, Let's see if this does have a history and what kind of a history it is. But I wonder if that particular issue, uh, the topic of objectivity and its twinning with subjectivity, isn't uh, kind of built into, uh, I don't know how you'd say it, the, the DNA of American historiography, um, stemming from Husserl and the crisis of the European sci uh, sciences in the 1930s. Alexandra Quine's taking up the Galilean thematics of that. Um, 
uh, Quareve and forming a powerful group of disciples in the United States, uh, which would include people like Charles Gillespie, who then writes a work called The Edge of Objectivity, uh, followed immediately after by Thomas Kuhn's work on Structure of Scientific Revolutions, um, which I often think could be entitled The Edge of Subjectivity. <laughs> and so I, I, I do wonder if you have that mm -hmm. sense mm -hmm. of your own work in that sense as, 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 as coming out of what I would call maybe quite specifically American preoccupations of the 1940s and 50s and into the 60s. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, 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 I'm really struck by the, the, the question. Um, and it is true when you reflect on the... Uh, sinuous trajectory, intellectual trajectory yes. of people like Quare and yes. their influence, or people like Panofsky, Mutatis yeah, Mutandis for art history. Yeah. So that you know the convulsions of 20th century history, which led to this mass intellectual migration. So Quare coming from Russia, a refugee, uh, I believe a white Russian, right? Yes, 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 yes right. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, coming first to Göttingen to study with Husserl, um, and then to Paris, um, and then to Princeton. Um, mm -hmm being creatively misunderstood at each new port of call, <laughs> um, just like, just like, just like Panofsky. And then, of course, you know, mine and Peter's generation, there was the additional layer of creative misunderstanding of our teachers trying to convey it to us. So um, um, this, this creates a kind of amusing random number generator, you know, in yes. addition to, in addition yes. to the more deterministic associations of yes. DNA um, that, um, that you use. And what I think is really, what really um, resonates in your description is, and I realize it only in your description, is the melancholy chord which all of these refugees struck about science and which Charles Gillespie picked up in yes. the edge of objectivity, although I don't think Charles, if Charles ever, ever picked up Husserl, I will eat my hat, but, um, <laughs> but, um, but um, hoping that that's not an injustice to Charles. What he really caught was something that some of you, the older people in the room may have read, um, Burt's Metaphysical yes, Foundations. Yes, yes. So this sense of melancholy about modernism, a mo very Max Weber, Wissenschaftler's Beruf, um, and Sauberung der Welt, which is, yes, we are rational. Yes, we've put aside childish things. Um, yes, we are no longer allowed to believe in fairies. Mm. How we long for it. <laughs> how difficult <laughs> it is to grow up. Um, and in a sense, it's just the second act of, you know, Kant's Was ist Aufklärung? Um, you know, Kant's metaphor, what does it mean to be enlightened? It means to grow up. It means to emancipate ourselves from our self-imposed tutelage. Um, so that the idea of childhood, and Sally, you will know infinitely more about this than I will, and I please jump in. Um, um, the idea of childhood, which becomes so strong in the 19th century, is a privileged um, part of life, um, at once irrational but wistfully charming irrational, mm -hmm. that becomes inscribed into the narrative of the history of science. So what mm -hmm. is the rise of modern science? It is a giving up of humanity's childhood. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's, it's like Peter Pan coming back from Never Never <laughs> Land and, um, and the mm -hmm. like. Um, and we somehow, all of us, I know now, mm -hmm. I realize now, we all at some subterranean level assimilated this narrative um, which, as you say, without the Husserl, without the Krise der Europäischen Wissenschaft, Charles Gillespie also assimilated in 
the closing pages of the edge of objectivity yes. and croon in the structure of scientific revolution <coughs> those those bitter things he says about what it means to become a scientist. Um, Peter told me, Peter Gallison told me that um, Kuhn's dissertation was on the most unbelievably boring, narrow topic you could then do in physics. It was, it was normal science with a vengeance. And so when Kuhn writes that what it is to be a scientist these days is tantamount to being indoctrinated in orthodox theology, he knew whereof he spoke. And the, the kind of barely disguised resentment toward that mm. kind of straitjacket education, which I think must be why you thought it could, should be called the edge of subjectivity. Yeah. Yes, it's just the way he, yeah. he reaches mm. this coon for yeah. um, actually those sources which uh, uh, Foucault also drew on, going back to Myerson, to, to Metzger, right, to, right. to Cronwell. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. also, uh, and I think, I think that's really important. So you look at the people whom Kuhn thanks, and it's really amazing. It's Hélène Metzger, mm. it's Annelise Meyer, mm. it's Francis Yates, you know, it's a, the sort of the monstrous regiment of women. I mean, you know, it is it is the the great yeah. women historians yeah, of science of the true. previous that's generation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. Okay. Yes. No, fascinating thinking about the um, the trope of the child because uh, it links again, I think, into the um, the art science relationship mm -hmm. with all the the um, artistic declarations of, of uh, losing the, the magic of the rainbow, etc. Right. Well, when you, when you yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, there the, the, the would be a nostalgia for that is um, very interesting. This enchanted world that scientists mm -hmm. are actually having to forcibly forego. Mm -hmm. Which probably, has, as you know better than I, probably yeah. have very little to do with anybody's actual childhood, but. <laughs> No, no, no. I was, I was quite interested in the relationship also with women. Um, and interesting, the, the picking up of the, the female historians of science, because the, the self-abnegation that seems to be associated with the, uh, the scientist um, is perhaps another form of the social self-abnegation which was required of women, and yet the women are precisely the figures who are declared um, incapable of becoming scientists, particularly as of in the, in the mm -hmm. 19th century. Mm -hmm. yes. And there's very sort yeah. of interesting gendering yes. there. Yes. Um, yeah. yes, yes, it's really interesting thinking about this. Um, Mary Somerville. Mm. Um, so Mary Somerville is someone who does make a career um, as at least a, a popular writer of science, but an extremely well-informed one. I mean, she is the translator of Laplace. I mean, she, she really um, had, was a very accomplished um, 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 reader of the most difficult science of her day. Um, and it is always emphasized in descriptions mm -hmm. of her of how modest she is, mm -hmm. how, how self-effacing she is, um, how she is indeed a loyal wife and mother, mm. um, how she has not attempted to foist herself upon the scientific public. She has not tried mm. Mm. to, um, like, you know, Margaret, Duchess of Cavendish, many centuries before, um, crash a royal society meeting or anything of the kind. Um, so this element of knowing, of holding herself back, um, mm. of not capitalizing upon her celebrity, um, is thematized 
by mm. her male colleagues of the day. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Could I just uh, pick up now on a um, slight change of topic, but the material history that you're looking at, but the relationship between that and materialism in that you were talking on Monday about the insurance companies and the power of the insurance companies and then the shift from the 1970s to the 1990s and uh, sort of now the ways in which they're, they're actually looking almost for mm -hmm. what we would deem the uninsurable. And I wondered if you could take that back into the 18th century um, and think about the ways in which the science that was emerging then and through into the 19th century was actually linked up to the developments of forms of insurance. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, so it's really, it is really interesting to think um, back on something which historians of science perhaps do not make clear enough. John will correct me if he thinks this is unfair, but that is, so there is this Baconian promise, this IOU um, of the early 17th century, which is seized upon by another generation of Baconians, not only in Britain, but mostly in, in Britain, um, that there's going to be such a thing as what we would call science-based technology. This remains pretty much an IOU um, until um, the early decades of the 19th century with the creation of um, size optical glass, mm -hmm. the coal tar mm -hmm. derivative industry, mm -hmm. and, and the like. Um, that is, there are precious few examples of technologies which are genuinely inspired by science. Um, mm. So there is the lightning rod of Benjamin Franklin, but that of course was inspired by a theory we no longer think is the right theory of electricity, <laughs> and which a mm. lot of people at the time didn't think was the right theory of electricity. Um, so something like the insurance industry, and the mathematicians say this, De Moivre, Condorcet, Laplace, mm. they all say this, this is an example of useful science. We you know, um, science marches, 18th century science marches mm -hmm. under the banner of utility. Finally, an example of how we can be useful. And mm -hmm. so it's ideologically extremely important mm -hmm. for an enlightenment vision of science to be able to point to the insurance industry such as it was. Now, mind you, so mm -hmm. the only part of the insurance industry which could, was actually mathematically based was life insurance. And even that wasn't really mathematically based. I mean, if you looked at the um, premiums that were charged and the actual risks calculated from the mortality tables from the actuaries, there's a real gap. Surprise, surprise, the premiums are much higher than they should be. And um, that's because they were terrified that you might get um, an episode of sudden catastrophic mortality, as in the case of the plague, mm. and that you know, unless you had huge reserves, you wouldn't be mm -hmm. able to, to pay up. But, um, so at the level of, you know, the ideology of science itself, science is useful. The insurance industry mm. um, had um, real billboard value. At the level, you know, sort of the moralizing level, I mean, who bought this stuff? Who bought life insurance? Most people wanted to buy annuities. So annuities are the reverse of life insurance. So in life insurance, I pay, um, every month, um, and I'm in a sense betting that I'm going to die early so that my, my mm. small investment of payments mm. will then be capitalized for my beneficiaries from the insurance company. An annuity is just the opposite. I pay a lump sum when I'm in good health, and I'm betting that I'm going to live a long time, and the, the, the whoever, in many cases, the 
early modern Europe, the government will pay me a lump sum every month for as long as I live. So it's the, just the photographic mm -hmm. negative of the show. And most people, for obvious reasons, wanted annuities. They wanted things that were for themselves and that um, had the optimistic mm -hmm. expectation they were going to live a whole long time and reap um, their investment back with interest. And the mindset difference, so who you know, finally decides they're going to invest for their beneficiaries, it's Protestant pastors in mm. both um, Britain, in Scandinavia, and in Germany, um, the German lands. And they start to think that it is part of their responsibility to um, provide for their families beyond the grave. So it's about this lengthening radius mm -hmm. of responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, it's they who then, they ask the mathematicians, because I, I think it's the Scottish widows, but the widows of the Scottish clergy who ask Colin McLaurin, the yes. mathematician, right. is, yes. is that correct? Yes, exactly. it like is, yes, yes. For the actuarial yeah, calculations. Yeah. And then, um, yes, yeah, so who wants the insurance? It, it's these collectives, mm -hmm. isn't it? Because then a little later, uh, Chatham, um, the elder Pitt, he asks uh, Richard Price, um, mm -hmm. the colleague of Joseph Priest, who's mm -hmm. a very good practical mathematician, to do work for the government uh, 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 with respect to quite what fund, I've forgotten. Well, yes, the government yeah. was big yes. into annuities. Yeah. Um, the Dutch pioneered this, as they pioneered so much in the 17th century. Um, but they, they were um, wildly off. I don't think they used any kind of statistics whatsoever. Um, they, there were a few statistics that were gathered by Johan Hood um, um, and Jan de Witt, but um, they, they, they underestimated how long people would live. So they lost huge amounts of money in the annuities market. So I don't think they employed any statisticians <laughs> or mathematicians. <laughs> the Scottish widows yeah. were a lot more shrewd. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah.